Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Matthew chapter 20, if you have a Bible. And you guys have been in a series called The Way, and you're moving through Mark's gospel. So I'm not going to sort of officially be in that series, although we're going to stay sort of on that theme. Um, And I'm going to talk about the way Jesus serves. So it will be in the theme. It won't be Mark's gospel. And sort of if you've been throughout this series, the text that we're going to look at is actually familiar to something that Pastor Andrew would have taught uh, just a few months ago in Mark chapter 10. Um, But this is the parallel passage of that in Matthew's gospel, and I think it gives us some good insight into this idea of the way Jesus serves. So Matthew 20, um, verse 17, it reads this way. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him to the Gentiles to, to be mocked and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. Then, this next section, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, and notice who he talks to, you don't know what you ask, Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm to be baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it's prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can um, freely open it. And God, it is living and powerful and you want to speak to us through it. So God, we ask that you would speak. Holy Spirit, come have your way in our lives, in our heart this morning. And God, would you help us to just tune in to what you want to say to us corporately together, but then also individually. Lord, we thank you that your word um, can transcend a group and go to individuals and speak exactly to what um, we're going through through or what we're in need of. So we ask that you would do that this morning. We love you. We thank you in Jesus name. Amen. Um, A few months ago, I went to my first ever Texas rodeo. We were in Texas and it happened to be um, like this, I mean, nationwide, like the big rodeo was in Texas. So we went to it and it was quite the experience. I'm, I'm not really familiar with like that lifestyle at all. Um, And so it was very shocking. Um, The first scene, like when they, scene, like whatever, with the first moment, they opened the gate and it was the the Bronco and it came out and I was, we were kind of like 
alarmed, like, oh my gosh, is this allowed? Like, what is happening? Um, anyways, at the beginning of it, there was the MC, and he was sort of like calling out how the night was going to go. It starts with like them thanking the great state of Texas, and everybody goes crazy. We did the Pledge of Allegiance. We sang the national anthem, and then um, the 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 MC talked about a cowboy who had recently passed away. And uh, he talked about how great this cowboy was, and then he prayed for the cowboy and for the night. And it was really special. He, he prayed for everything, and it, it was really sweet. Um, but then in his prayer, he was like, Lord, we thank you so much, speaking about this cowboy, that he is sitting at your right hand right now. And we're like sitting there, I'm, I'm a pastor, and I kind of like open my eyes, I'm like, that's not quite right. <laughs> like, I'm sure this cowboy was great, um, but the right hand of the father, that's kind of Jesus' spot. Like, no matter how great he was riding the bull or the bronco, like, he didn't earn that position. And it was kind of like, he's just a little confused, and I'm sure he would have benefited the MC from reading this passage that we just read. Like, that spot's reserved for someone specific. And I get it, he was confused. But in the same way, the disciples are a bit confused in this moment. We see that they, uh, Jesus is articulating what's going to happen in their very new future. And they sort of say, hey, can we sit at your right hand and left? The disciples were confused on what Jesus was doing, even down to the very reason he's here. It's been said that this text, the final verse that we read, summarizes the ministry mission of Jesus. He says that the Son of Man came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is essentially the whole gospel, that Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he gave his life for us so that we might find life in him. And even as clearly as he could put it, the disciples don't get it. The disciples are confused. The disciples don't understand what's going on. But Jesus in this moment, he was both defining serving and setting a model for us to follow on how to serve others and how to serve God. He's defining serving. He gives us his definition, but then he also is going to display it. This is what it looks like to Serve. So that's kind of how I want to outline this text this morning. We're going to talk about how Jesus serves or uh, how we serve. The first thing that we see this morning is we serve by being ready to suffer. We serve God by being ready to suffer. This story begins with Jesus giving a roadmap of his future specifically and then their future generally. He says they're going to Jerusalem, which they've done plenty of times. This wouldn't be the first time that they make this journey uh, to Jerusalem. But this time it would be different. He says when they get there, he would be betrayed to the religious leaders. He would be wrongfully condemned to death. He would be handed over to Roman officials. He'd be mocked, beaten, and crucified. But then on the third day, rise again. This is both a difficult future and also a detailed future, right? This is very clear where they're headed. Jesus, they're on the road, and he pulls them aside. He has a team meeting. He's like, hey, guys, this is what's going to go down. We're going to Jerusalem. When I get there, don't be surprised. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over to the religious leaders. I will be condemned to death. I'll be arrested. I'll be beaten. I'll be mocked. I'll be crucified, and then I'm going to rise again. Very detailed, very clear, and yet very difficult. And Jesus is stepping into the primary reason that he came, and he knows that the road ahead for him is marked with suffering. 
but his suffering would not be purely spiritual or, or, from, uh, or, or because of enemy persecution. He, he, even in Jesus' description of what's going to happen, he gives us insight into the types of suffering he will endure. Let's look at, look at them uh, one by one. First, he says he will suffer from the disloyalty of friends. He says, I'm going to be betrayed. Jesus' investment, time, care, and even miracles wouldn't prevent being betrayed, denied, and abandoned by those closest to him. The people that Jesus spent all of his time caring for and serving would either forget the effort of their master, see something of more value to them, or be too afraid to continue after him. Judas would betray for a few silver coins. Peter would deny at the threat of a schoolgirl. Thomas would doubt at the first sign of struggle, and all others would abandon Jesus is going to suffer, not just in a spiritual sense, not just because of enemies, but because of people closest to him. He also tells us that he's going to suffer from injustice. He's condemned by the chief priests and the scribes. If you know the story, you know that everything about the arrest, trial, and, and, and verdict was completely unfair. Jesus was arrested in the middle of the night while he was praying in the garden. Then he was taken in the same night, the middle of the night, to a trial that was illegal. The, the Jews did not have the authority to set up a trial like this or condemn somebody to death. And so they had this illegal trial in the middle of the night. And then one by one, they would call up witnesses to testify against Jesus. And even in the witnesses' testimonies, they would contradict one another. One testimony would come up and say this, and somebody else would come up and contradict what they would say. And yet, in all of that sort of circus of a trial, at the end of it, they condemn Jesus to death. They then lead him away and hand him over to the Roman officials where they convince them to actually put him to death. But the trial, it was in all sense of the word, unfair. It was not due process at all. Jesus suffered at the hands of his friends, but he also suffered to things beyond his control or outside of what was fair. He will also suffer, he tells us, from insults, humiliation, pain, and death, what he says, mocked, scourged, and crucified. From being mocked and called the king of the Jews, his beard being torn out, crown of thorns twisted onto his head, whipped, hit, spat upon, and finally crucified. Jesus would suffer, ultimately, the worst form of suffering through physical pain and death. Jesus, his experience, what he was about to walk in, was about every reason why you wouldn't want to do something, right? If we were to, like, survey the room and say, okay, what are the things that you're afraid of will happen if you do this? One would be either betrayed or abandoned by people closest to us, right? I, I I don't want that feeling, Or things outside of your control or things unfair happening to you. Or third, like kind of the biggest fear would be pain or discomfort or ultimately death. And Jesus, knowing all of that, he said, this is where we're going, steps fully into serving. And when it comes to serving God, we must recognize and be willing to step into what's in front of us regardless of the difficulty it may bring. 
we get at times a picture of success in serving, whether it's through achievement or acknowledgement or even comforts. And this might be from the celebrity pastor who's flaunting their wealth from serving God or from just a generic picture of success, which looks like doing nothing. We're sitting back, we're relaxed, we don't have to work anymore. But for Jesus, the arrival at success or the reason he came was through the doorway of suffering for the sake of others. That the arrival of success or the arrival of getting to where he was always planning to go was through the doorway of suffering for the sake of others. And the result of serving God, I hate to be like a downer this morning, the result of serving God could be suffering. But that's not a reason to turn from it. In fact, the early church celebrated when they suffered. When the first time some of the apostles were arrested, beaten, and then released, they went home singing and rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer the same affliction that their Savior suffered. And many of the disciples would be uh, put to death as a result of their faith in serving God. And so suffering isn't something to be afraid of or to cause us to stop going, but a reason to rejoice in the fact that we get to join in God's suffering. The Bible makes it very clear that if we join in his suffering, we will also join in his his resurrection. And it's, yeah, it's a truth about serving, but it's not a reason to run from it. So in order to serve, we got to be ready to suffer. But number two, in order to serve, we serve by removing self, removing self. What we read in Matthew 20 is the third time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. A third time. So this isn't the first time they're hearing of it. But in every case, every time the disciple or Jesus says it, the disciples don't get it. Their own ideas, plans, or ambition gets in the way. And in order to serve God faithfully, we must be able to remove our own self or flesh because our flesh causes us to not believe or not care about the things of God. I want to walk us through the three times Jesus predicts his death. The first time is in uh, Matthew 16. Jesus tells them a similar trajectory. He says, I'm going to be uh, betrayed, arrested, condemned, die, die and resurrect. Um, but they don't believe it. In fact, they so don't believe it that Peter confronts Jesus and tells him, far be it from you, this shall not happen to you. He, he so doesn't believe what Jesus is saying that he confronts him to his face and he's like, you're wrong, Jesus. That's not going to happen. That, that's how confident in disbelieving Jesus he was. Peter doesn't believe and he corrects Jesus. Could you imagine that that scene seems so like just, just otherworldly to me. I have a hard time correcting people or confronting people when I know that they're wrong. Like confrontation is awkward, isn't it? Like nobody wants to confront or correct people. Um, my brother, he's here with me, but he's an identical twin. One of his brothers uh, or one of the twins lives uh, in Vero and then he lives down here. And the twin, Trevor, he uh, has identical twins himself. So they're identical twins and they have identical twins. And if you're like, Oh, it's hereditary. That's fraternal twins. Identical, identical twins are just completely random. So it's like they're freak of nature. Like it's crazy. Anyways, James, the one that lives down here, will, will come up and visit uh, in Vero. And people will talk to my brother James like he's Trevor. So they'll say like, how are you? How are the twins doing? Like blah, blah, blah. 
And most of the time, he can tell you for sure afterwards, but he'll just go with it. Yeah, the twins are great. Everything's great. Like, I'm not going to correct you even though you're talking to the wrong twin right now. Because it's awkward. Like, you're 10 minutes into the conversation. Like, I'm good. We'll just run. I know enough about him that I don't need to correct him. And we'll just go through it. Like, because sometimes correcting people is awkward. It's, it's, it's hard to do. And yet here we have this situation where Jesus is like, hey, this is my future. And Peter's like, you're wrong, Jesus. That's not going to happen. I don't believe you. And Jesus has to rebuke Peter in that scene. But all of that to say, as crazy as it might seem for Peter to correct him in that way, we all the time don't believe the promises of God through our actions. We don't believe what God says because if we did, we'd put an emphasis on it in our lives. Our own flesh can cause us to not believe the promises of God. We don't think God's word will come to pass or God doesn't really care if I do or don't do that. He doesn't mean it if he says this. We think this way because we don't believe the promises of God. Because if we believe the promises of God, we would allow his word to impact and shape our lives. So the first time Jesus predicts they don't believe, the second time he predicts is in chapter 17, and this time they don't understand. First time they dismiss it, they don't believe it. Second time they don't understand. We're told that Jesus predicts that he'll die and be raised back to life and that they're exceedingly sorrowful. In Mark's gospel, when Jesus predicts his death for the second time, it says this, Mark 9, but they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. They don't understand the glorious triumph of the resurrection and all that he's yet to do. And so they're sad and they're afraid to ask him to elaborate. And our flesh, our, our self, will cause us to not understand the promises of God. And too often we don't understand or allow ourselves to understand what God's doing. We either take things at face value, it is what it is, or we assume the worst. Have you ever assumed the worst about God? Or, or put it, let me put it this way. Have you ever not given God the benefit of the doubt? A situation in your life or a circumstance is going on and we immediately go to worst case scenario. God, if you cared about me, you wouldn't allow this to happen. Or if God, you were in control, you would step in. Or if God, your promises were true, then this wouldn't look like this. And so often we don't give God the benefit of the, of the doubt. We assume the worst. But maybe the reason this is happening is not because God is mean or because he doesn't care or because he can't help. Maybe we simply don't understand the fullness of what God is doing in our lives. The third time Jesus predicts his death and resurrection is here. And the first time they don't believe, the second time they don't understand, this third time it doesn't seem like they care. Jesus gives a powerful and descriptive roadmap of his future. Betrayal, arrest, condemned, beaten, mocked, die. And then in comes Mama Zebedee to ask if her precious angels can sit on Jesus' right and left hand. This scene, it's almost like abrupt and awkward, isn't it? Jesus is like bearing his heart. Hey, we're going to Jerusalem. It's not going to look like all the other times. It, it, this is what's ahead. And then here comes Mama Zebedee with James and John. And they're like, hey, um, that's great, Jesus. I hear you. Um, but my precious boys, 
James and John, John and James, you know, John's your favorite, the disciple whom you love, remember him, and his brother James, they're the best, my boys, look how handsome they are. Can they sit with you on your right and left when you enter into your glory? Jesus, your plans are nice and all, but here's what we're thinking. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, we got you. It's great, awesome. You do that, but can we do what I want to do? Can my plans happen? Now, her idea stems from a misunderstanding of something Jesus has said. In fact, we're in chapter 20. If you look back in chapter 19, Jesus says this in chapter 28. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's some sort of context to her request. But she's very confused by it. She's taking some out-of-context idea and saying, this is how I want it to apply to my life. This is, okay, I heard kind of vaguely. I wasn't really listening, but I heard what you said. And so can we work this into my plan? Can we take what you said, God, and make it just squeeze into what I want to do already? And often our self or our flesh or our own motives will cause us to not care about the things of God and think that our plans are better or more important. We care more about what we want to do rather than God's plans in our life. And all of these reasons will keep us from serving God. We doubt the promises of God or we don't understand the ways of God or we think that our plans are better than God's. But surrendered serving God comes when we remove ourself or our reasons why we can't and we make ourselves available to whatever God is calling us to do. Now, this interaction causes some tension amongst the disciples. I'm sure some of them are disgusted. How could you say that? Why would you ask him that? Did you not just hear what he told us about where he's going? Maybe somebody else is like, ah, oh, why didn't I think of that? I should have asked my mom to come and ask if I could sit on his right and left hand. Whatever the case, we're told that they're greatly displeased, that there's tension within the disciples. Dude, you're such an idiot. You are so dumb. Why would you ask that? What, what, what were you thinking, right? There, all of this is happening within the disciples. And Jesus, as the great teacher and leader that he is, he immediately deals with it. He doesn't let it fester. He doesn't let people just talk. He, he, he confronts it. He says, okay, let, let's talk about this. Listen to what he says in verse 25. He says, but Jesus called him to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Notice that the problem is not their desire for greatness. The problem is their definition of greatness. I'm going to say that again because this is my key point. Their problem is not their desire for greatness. Because two times he says, whoever desires to become great. And then again, whoever desires to be first. Twice. He says, if you desire to be great, that's not the problem. 
The problem is not your desire for greatness. The problem is your definition of greatness. And what he's saying is your definition of greatness is coming from the culture around you. He says, you know that the Gentiles, they lord it over them. That, that greatness in the world that we live in is authority. It's power. It's about being in charge. It's about being first. It's about having control. He says, that's what the culture says greatness is. But it's not so among you. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not about first, it's not about preference, it's not about me, it's about serving others. Jesus says if you want to be great, you must learn to serve others. We all, I think, have some level of desire to be great. We all want to do great or be great. And Jesus doesn't condemn anyone for desire for greatness. We should have that desire. We should want to be great in our work and in our family and in our influence and in whatever we do. We should have a desire to be great. But we also need to receive Jesus' definition of greatness. And this begins with the removal of self. This begins with serving others, esteeming others better than ourselves, the Bible would say. So serving begins as we remove ourselves and we begin to esteem others better than ourselves. The final thing that we see here in the way that we serve is by being committed to serving others. We serve others by being ready to suffer. We serve by removing self, and then we serve by being committed to serving others. The final verse of this section gives us clear definition and display of what, Jesus, or what serving looks like. I'll read it again, verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Two thoughts on serving, and we'll close. Number one, serving others is about self-forgetting. Serving others is about self-forgetting. The word that Jesus uses to describe serving is slave or servant, and it's essentially the same word. Servant, the word, it means to be devoted to another, to the disregard of one's own interest. And all of this, this idea of serving requires humility. Humility. It's been said that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking about yourself less. We've all experienced somebody who has a false sense of humility that acts like they're being humble, but really they just want to be praised and it still makes them the center of attention. Humility is about preferring other people and promoting what can build up and help them. And this is a countercultural, cultural, excuse me, cultural and rare virtue. In fact, for most of uh, human history, humility was not a strength but a weakness. In the time of Christ, humility was basically not in the dictionary among Greek and Roman philosophers. They didn't believe that anything beneficial could grow in the soil of humility. They didn't see that it was a worthwhile virtue because it didn't benefit them at all. It can't be good because it doesn't help me. And even in our day today, humility is more common, but it isn't valued in the path to greatness or success. And so humility is often forgotten about. It's talked about, but it's rarely practiced. But listen, we can't allow the lack of humility in others to be an excuse for lack of humility in our own life, where we learn to esteem others better than ourselves. And serving begins when we can stop focusing on ourself and begin, begin esteeming others better than ourselves. And then finally, in worship team, you can make your way back up here. 
Serving others is self-giving. Serving others is about self-forgetting, but then also self-giving. This comes as we aim towards Jesus. Jesus says that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. And denying self begins with Jesus. I'm going to say that again because I know it's simple, but it's important. Denying self begins with Jesus and the process of us becoming more like him. Serving is a byproduct of what Jesus does in our own life. If you attempt to find motivation to serve other people by the behavior of other people, you will never serve. Right? If we're like, okay, I'm going to wait around until other people are worth serving. You will wait forever. Or if you think, I'm going to wait around until I feel like serving, you will wait forever. Serving is not about self. It's about giving self. It's about allowing yourself to, to, to lay down even your own rights or your own plan or your own ambitions and say, how can I esteem? How can I promote other people? And as Jesus works in you and transforms you from the inside out, serving others comes as a natural byproduct. As a result of what God does in our life, we say, man, God, you have done so much for me. This work that you've accomplished in my own life, it now overflows into other people. It's not me drumming up some reason or some feeling to serve other people. But you see, Jesus, all that he's done for my life, and as a result, I'm going to give my life for others. Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. And it wasn't because we were so worthy of it or because we make it really easy for him to love us. Jesus came to give and to give his life a ransom. There's a lot of theological speculation and debate about who Jesus was paying this ransom to. Some say he was buying us from the devil, but that gives the devil equal footing with God and that the devil dictates terms to God and he doesn't. Others say that this was simply like a baited hook to catch Satan. The cross was a trap for the devil. William Barclay, a commentator, says this, quote, But this all takes this simple picture too far. A ransom is something paid or given to liberate a man from a situation from which it is impossible to free himself. This is what Jesus has done. He's given himself so that we could find freedom in him. And maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. The gospel is that you can find freedom in Christ. Freedom from sin and self. Freedom from guilt and shame. Freedom from fear and worry. And we can find freedom to experience God and to experience the true greatness in serving him through others. And if you're here and you do know Christ... You've been set free from sin and set into the family of God to participate in the kingdom of God. God has called all of us to serve him, and we do that primarily through serving others. God has called each and every one one of us to participate in his kingdom. And one of the simple ways we do that is simply by serving other people. How can I esteem others? How can I look out not just for my own interests, but also for the interests of others? How can I use my life and my experiences and my resources and my ability or my time or my heart of compassion to serve the people around me? Participating in what Jesus is doing by seeing him as the example and then using what God has given us to be a blessing to other people. We've all been 
privileged, for lack of a better word, to serve God. It's an invitation for all of us. And one of the amazing things about stepping into serving God is you don't have to have all the ability. You also don't have to have been perfect. <laughs> I think sometimes for many of us, one of the things that keeps us from stepping into serving God is maybe past failure or where we come from or what we've done. But the beauty of the gospel is that it's an invitation to something new. That old things pass away and we become new in Christ Jesus and we're empowered by his spirit to walk with him and to serve him. And so wherever you find yourself at, maybe in ability or experience or knowledge or whatever it is, know that God has given you something to use for his glory and for the benefit of others. What has he given you right now in your own life? What are the situations that are, that are uncomfortable that maybe it's an opportunity for you to serve others? Maybe it's a situation just, I don't know what's going on. I'm really lost. I'm confused. I'm not sure what, what the next step. Well, how does God want to use you right now for his glory and for the benefit of others? Or maybe it's something you've been doing for a long time and it's felt monotonous and the same. You've, I don't know where that came from. Um, it's, uh, every day it feels like the same thing. Clock in, clock out, over and over again. Maybe God wants to repurpose that, reshape how you view those monotonous days rather than just clocking in, clocking out, but an opportunity to serve God and to serve others. Can I encourage you this morning that God wants to use your life for his glory and for the benefit of others? And as we step in, we don't have to have all the answers, but we can trust that God wants to use us right where we're at. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you, God, that you have set an example for us to follow in serving. And if anyone had a reason to think of themselves more highly than others, even, not even in a prideful way, but just as a matter-of-fact way, it was you. And yet you humbled yourself to the lowest point. Death, even death on the cross. So God, we look to you as an example and as a motivation Lord, to serve you and to serve others. And Lord, would you help us to see the things in our life currently, um, maybe differently or um, maybe with just a, an excitement to serve you through them. Lord, I pray for every person that's here, every uh, parent, every husband and wife, every sibling, every employee, every boss. Lord, we thank you that so much is, is uh, uh, represented here. And Lord, we thank you that you can use us in our sphere for your glory. So help us to do that, God. Help us to do things with all of our ability as unto you so that you would be glorified in our lives and through our lives. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you that it starts with you. So we look to you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.